0: Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll get busy. Father, as always, we are thankful for your kindness to us and again for giving to us your word. Father, it is your word that supplies to us all of the information and all of the answers that we need to all of the questions that we may ask or ever could ask about life, about you, about ourselves, how to be able to live, where to find joy, how to experience love. All of it, Father, is here in your word. And we are grateful, Lord, that you have given to us the answers that we need. And, Father, we ask as believers that by your Spirit you would enable us, Father, to be able to comprehend the truths that are here. That Father, we really have a a very deep sense of knowing and understanding what your Word says. That Father, our lives may continually be changed by your Word. The way that we think, the way we think, the way we approach life, the way we evaluate things, the way we understand things, we pray that it would be by the standard of truth, you've given to us in your word. And so, Father, as always, we do thank you for this time, and we do thank you for your word, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First Corinthians 1, beginning once again in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, the stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What we started to do last week, and we will do today, and for a couple of weeks, is I really want us to get a sense of the truth and the validity of what Paul is writing here. I don't want us to think that these are lots of, you know, that these are some pretty strong words, and they're nice, and this is to kind of encourage us. But somehow, either we don't quite grasp, or maybe we haven't really thought about how this is rooted in reality. I want us to be able to understand, have a better, I guess, sense of why it is that the non-believers consider the message of the cross foolishness. And I also want us to have a really, a really good sense of what it means when God says. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. It's very important for us to understand that. Not from a sense of arrogance or where we can say where our side wins because God has, you know, made others look foolish. But I want us to see the reality of how this actually takes place. I want us to understand that when we we read through this passage or when you hear others speaking... I would, and I would say others speaking in the sense of those who are non-believers who may sound like they're making very intelligent statements and arguments, maybe against Christianity, that really what they're saying is a bunch of foolishness. Not just because we have decided to categorize it as foolishness, but because when we listen to it, we can actually hear and recognize the foolishness that is in it because we understand what the Word of God has to say. So we're not just arbitrarily putting certain types of thoughts and intellectual things into a into a box marked foolishness, and we just kind of ignore it and, and move on, on our way. But I want us to realize that we actually open that box and look at those things and say, yeah, that really is a bunch of foolishness. Now, when it comes to that, we're kind of moving into an area. Um, it, I guess the most common name is the area of apologetics. But I want us to look at it a little bit differently than maybe perhaps we're accustomed to, and that is this. I mentioned this last week. And so if you were to take an individual who's an atheistic science scientist and a person who's a scientist who's a Christian, I have to say it that way because if you say a Christian scientist, that's another person altogether. Uh, so we have a scientist who's a Christian. But they both go to the, uh, to the Smithsonian, to the, to the Museum of Natural uh, History and Science, and they look at the dinosaur bones that are there. They're both going to look at those dinosaur bones and understand and know that dinosaurs existed. They actually lived. But the one who's the Christian is going to look at this beast, the bones of this beast, and he's going to uh, think about the the marvelous aspects of God the creator who made these things, who made this animal which is now extinct, and think in, in those terms or in those categories. The individual who's the atheist somehow is either looking at our ancestors or somehow this beast evolved into something else and they go off into all kinds of weird speculations. And so what they're both doing, when they both recognize that those are actual dinosaur bones, that would be science. When they then begin to imagine or try to figure out where those dinosaurs came from, how they got here, what they did, those types of things, even though some of those aspects, they're still doing science, there's also what we call the philosophy of science. Because they both have some presuppositions. And that's what we began to harp on last week a little bit, is that everyone has presuppositions, even scientists, have presuppositions, and often those presuppositions are not even challenged. They're just things that we have assumed to be t- to be true. And oftentimes, when we have discussions with individuals, we sometimes can have a discussion where we're both making the same assumptions. We're both we both have the same presuppositions, so we can carry on a conversation and we can be connecting on whatever it is that we're talking about. All right. But if an individual that you're talking with has different presuppositions than you do then even though you might be both speaking on the same category, you're not speaking the same language. You're coming at it from at least two different perspectives. And so we want to make sure we have a good understanding of that. And again, how then does that relate to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians? So again, what we're looking at here is the idea that everyone, as I've already said, has presuppositions. There are certain claims that we make. The agnostic may be someone who denies certainty, but certainty and universal claims are unavoidable. The agnostic might attempt to claim that no one can know anything for certain, yet he just made a statement that he knew something for certain. So you don't have to know what he knows. All you have to do is begin right from the very beginning. He just contradicted himself, which means it doesn't matter what else he says, he's wrong. Because he just said, we can know nothing for certain, and I guess if he was to kind of phrase it correctly, he would say, we know nothing for certain, and I'm certain that that's certain. That's really what he's saying. There are those who say that true knowledge is impossible. That one cannot, but we have to remember that one cannot know that knowledge is impossible, because that's actually knowledge. You actually have the knowledge that knowledge is impossible, so therefore knowledge is possible. That's what we're getting at, is, is these, those are called self-refuting statements. The individual is, is contradicting himself, and that's one of the things that we claim as Christians when we read through the Bible, we announce to others that when you read from Genesis to Revelation, God never contradicts himself. That absolute truth is established, and God doesn't contradict himself. When you look at other religions, what you will find eventually as you study them is they contradict themselves. They cannot help but do that. They actually must do that at some point, because they're not dealing with universal truths. They're not dealing with absolute truth. They're, doing, they're dealing with other things. So I want to talk about evolution for a minute. I guess when I say that, I mean minute in the way that it's used now. You know, I, I, when I first heard someone say that, I was kind of confused. And so I said, yeah, I've been doing that for a minute. And I was like, they've been doing what? And that, that gets, it's a euphemism now, I guess, for a long period of time. So anyway, so when I say we're going to deal with evolution for a minute, that'd be the rest of the morning. Uh, so again, just so that you are, are, uh, remember this, that remember that evolution, again, is just a theory. Just so you know, that's never changed. It's still just a theory. It has never been proven scientific fact. It is often presented as if it is, even though people will not say that, it's, that that's what it is. But it is a theory, it is an ideology. According to, Dar- to a Darwinian guy, his name is Michael Roos. This is a British-born Canadian philosopher of science. He specializes in the philosophy of biology and teaches at Florida State. And he's not a believer. And he says this about uh, evolution. He says, it is a religion. I believe he's correct. Let me read you the full quote uh, that he gave in a, uh, in a book that he wrote. He says, evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion. In fact, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. I am an ardent evolutionist and an ex-Christian. We won't explain that, but anyway. He says, but I must admit that in this, uh, in this one complaint... And Mr. Dwayne Gish, Dwayne Gish was a very well-known in Christian circles as a scientist. He was a Christian. Uh, he was around back in the 60s where he and Henry Morris would go to various college um, campuses and do debates with scientists and biologists on those campuses. And, of course, they would present creation and try to show, or they actually didn't try, they would show the fallacy of evolution. And they did that for many, many years. And after a while, it stopped. And the reason why it stopped was because there were no more scientists who were willing to debate them, not in public. That's why it ended. Uh, they, they, they were calling and they were doing everything they could to even stack the deck against themselves in a public forum or public debate on college campuses. And the colleges began to basically uh, no longer schedule those types of things. Uh, and I think the, the reason is because these men would continue to make very clear claims that those who are watching, primarily students, could see that were true. But he says that, uh, so he says that he must admit that when it comes to the things that Dr. Duane Gisha said, that the literalists, those who look at the Bible, are absolutely right. Evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution still today. Evolution, therefore, came into being as a kind of secular ideology, an explicit substitute for Christianity. Which I think is interesting because we don't normally think of it that way. But we ought to think about it that way. And this individual who's not a Christian, who is an avowed evolutionist, is basically stating that what this theory is all about, it's not about science. It is to a degree, but that's not what, what the full goal is. This is being portrayed, this is being given to the public, this is being uh, thrown out there as an alternative to Christianity. Remember Romans 1. Man does not like to retain the knowledge of God, and so he suppresses it. Well, when it comes to trying to answer the questions of life, some of those questions are, where did life come from? Because that goes a long way in helping us to determine what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life. Well, if you're going to eliminate God, you've got to try to answer, you still have to answer those questions. And so what this is being uh delivered as what well, this is being proposed as is an alternative and there are many individuals who will say kinds of things this man has said that he is now turned to evolution he's an ex-christian or he's no longer going to follow the religion of his parents or he's no longer going to follow you know whatever he learned in church he's now going in this direction and that does appear to be uh, on many levels you'll hear individuals say this and that is well I have a scientific mind And because I have a scientific mind, I only want to look at the real evidence, at the facts. And there are individuals who use that kind of phrasing to proclaim why it is that they are not Christians or why they are no longer Christians. And that's being thrown out there, and it's a very persuasive, it's not an argument, but it's a very persuasive statement. Individuals, most people don't want to appear to be stupid. We don't want to be viewed as individuals who are retarded or whatever the term may happen to be. And so when an individual makes this very strong statement that, well, I'm thinking scientifically or I'm a scientist, the assumptions that are, in, that are packed into those statements are that if you then are going to continue to follow and believe in Christianity, then you are not thinking scientifically, you are not looking at facts, you are not really very smart at all, you're just following some superstitious fairy tale that makes you feel better and helps you to sleep good at night. That's what's all packed into those types of statements. And those statements are very effective in the sense that there are many individuals who are Christians or maybe perhaps who were raised in Christian homes who back down rather rapidly when individuals make those assertions. There are individuals who have left the church so to speak. You know, We all have heard um, there's been a couple of studies done and it's always very disturbing and that is the percentage of college freshmen uh, those who are raised, let's say, in church uh, or in a Christian home, or both, the percentage of those who, before the first year is over, in a sense, walk away from the faith or walk away from the church, the numbers are always in the eighty percentile range. Always, it's just, and people have been trying to figure out for a long time why is it that way, and I, I do think there are answers. I do think I don't think there's one answer that would be. Uh, actually a very simplistic type of approach I think there are many factors in there but part of that is at least this that we that we are not always addressing some of these harder issues at home and in the church we're not really looking at what the word of God has to say we're, we're afraid of individuals who ask questions we're terrified that we somehow we may not be able to give the answer but we don't need to be afraid we have the answers what God says here is still true. And the problem is with sometimes is we just don't know how that's true. I, well, I know the Bible says that God has made the, you know, the wisdom of the world kind of you know, dumbfounded, but I don't really know how he did that. And so we sometimes have this idea that we have to memorize all these facts and figures to be able to, to combat what the world is giving us. And you don't have to do all that. Because, again, it's not about taking the evidence and trying to compare an amount of evidence over here that the Christian has with the evidence that the atheist has to see who comes out the winner. Because they're both looking at the same things. It's not just dinosaur bones. It's everything in life. And they're both looking at the same thing. It's the presuppositions that we have to look at. Again, let me read this. Evolution has never been and never will be a proven fact. Macroevolution. Okay, you may have heard these terms. There's microevolution, there's macroevolution. Microevolution is really... Uh, it's not pro- I don't like that term, but I don't know any other term to use And that is normally within species, within a certain species, they have the ability to adapt and change to a degree. Uh, The most famous would be Darwin's finches. You know, there was a while when the finches, their beak was maybe this long. And there was a while when the beak was that long. And then after a while, it was back to that long again. You know, and and so, oh, you know, he said that proved evolution. That doesn't prove that a man came from a monkey. What that proves is the bird has the ability to have, some have a longer beak and some have a shorter beak. That's That's built into the species. Macroevolution is the idea that one species evolves into another, which is the ape evolves into a man, or the fish evolves into an ape, or whatever it may happen to be. And so macroevolution, according to many men who are Christians and women, who are also scientists and biologists and microbiologists and anthropologists and all the rest, they would say that macroevolution is a hoax. It is a philosophical swindle. It is a wicked fallacy. It is a fantasy that has hoodwinked, cheated, and duped more people than any other vain philosophy in history. Evolution is false. The universe could not have been started by an unguided Big Bang. If you just watch a grenade explode, you will notice that the pieces do not move or evolve in mathematical alignments or orbits. The pieces go in different, non-ordered directions. An explosion results in chaos, not order. One needs an unguided Big Bang to start the process of evolution. Evolution, then, is the champion delusion. It is a hoax and a fallacy. And also, it is a theory that self-destructs just under the surface level when you examine it. The technological advances in all fields of science have become the evolutionist's foe, not his friend or comrade. Blind chance acting on matter cannot explain the machine-like complexity and efficiency of even one cell. It cannot explain how the cell is programmed and where the information that is in the DNA, DNA code came from. In fact, the the scientists that are behind what there's been a movement now for several years called intelligent design. That's just not a movement that involves Christians. There's a lot of scientists who are not Christians who are deeply disturbed as they find out more and more information about, as they understand about how we work and how life works and in trying to answer the questions where life comes from, comes from. And what they're disturbed by is that none of the evidence, none of it, points to evolution. It all continues to point to the impossibility of evolution. It may be in their stubbornness. They don't want to admit that, there is, that the God of the Bible exists. And so what they'll say is, well, there has to be some kind of intelligent designer. And they, they don't want to go any further than that. Well, they, they can choose to do that. But in the end, the evidence still points, I believe, to the God of the Bible. But but I came across this, and I thought this is good. This is, this is a, a, a short little story that does mock evolution. But it's not false. This is how, if we're going to look at it realistically, this is what is being said, and this is what's being taught. And remember that this is not just something that you know, where this is someone's opinion that your kids are getting in science class. Remember that when this is presented even in science class, the goal of this, and that doesn't mean it's the goal of every single science teacher is doing this. They may not be thinking it through in this way, but this is still the ultimate goal of evolution. And that is to be a philosophy that, what, replaces Christianity. So it is, always has been, always will be, an attack on our faith. It's not science, It's horrible science. But let me read to you this little story. Once upon a time, billions of years ago, one small primal germ fitted and engineered itself together. It liked what it saw in a mirror, and it decided to reproduce itself. From the primordial soup of this seminal spore, all living organisms evolved. These archaic bacteria decided that they would like to move up the ladder and grab life for all of its gusto, And evolve into a mushroom. Then after millions of years, the it found out that being a mushroom is not all that it's cracked up to be. Being a spore is highly overrated. So it gathers all of its resolve and musters up all its determination. And with its own innate force, after millions and millions of years, the mushroom evolves into a tadpole. The tadpole gets bored rather rapidly and marshes up enough resolve to morph into a fish. The fish decides, after a great period of time, because it gets seasick, to develop into a reptile. So it can experience how sand feels between its toes. The fairy tale goes on to weave its tail. The reptile then evolves to a bird. Then the feathery creature develops a phobia of flying. So it grunts and groans, and after centuries and centuries, it develops into a mammal. The mammal evolves into an ape, and the ape decides one day that he likes poetry, music, and football, and he decides to become a man. So in the end, that is what, if you think about it, that's what's being put out there. That's what it is. Remember, though, Romans 1. But instead, they, that's the non-believers, became futile and godless in their thinking with vain imaginings, foolish reasoning, and stupid speculations. And their senseless minds were darkened claiming to be wise. They became fools, professing to be smart. They made simpletons of themselves. Now remember that what we're reading there, that's from the word of God. That's not a group of arrogant Christians who've gotten together, who've decided to mock non-believing thought. That's what God is saying. It takes sightless faith to believe in the mythology of evolution. I know that in the beginning, God, the God of the Bible, created the heavens and the earth. That is not some mythological statement. Remember that God is real. He actually does exist. He does have that kind of power. That is really the only reasonable explanation that is out there for what we all see with our own eyes. God created the heavens and the earth. Without this as our assumed starting point, nothing makes sense. In fact, so much so that we fall for delusions such as silly fairy tales. The more they suppress the truth, the more they embrace the lies and the inconsistencies. Now, you may not be aware of this, but throughout the Bible, over and over and over again, it comes back to what we have in Genesis chapter 1. Over and over, it goes back and points to who God is. The one who has created. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First Chronicles 16, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Nehemiah 9, 6, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Again, the foundation of the one true God that we believe in is not just some fairy tale, but goes back to this is the one who has started all that we know and all that we possess. Life itself is from Him. He is the one and only true God. Everything else is idols. It's made up. This is absurd for anyone to try to go in the opposite direction. This is the one that we worship, the one that we depend upon. Isaiah chapter 44, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and He who what framed you from the womb... I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. The idea that he formed us from the womb, even when children are born with defects, what we recognize that to be is that is the result of the curse of sin. But God is the one who formed each one of us. Our belief in the dignity of human beings, our belief that regardless of someone's ethnicity, We are all equal is because all human beings are created by God in his image. Period. And that's what the Bible continues to reiterate. Acts chapter 4. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. When these individuals, when these early believers are praying and they're facing persecution, or the apostles are facing persecution, when they begin their prayer, what they do is they remind themselves of who they're talking to. They're not talking to a tribal God. They're not just praying, hoping to feel better about themselves, because they're praying. Because, you know, there's a medical model out there now that's saying that patients who pray usually do better in the healing process. And that's true. But what the medical community, when I say that, that means the atheistic type of medical community, what they tend to stress in that is it is the act of praying and believing. It doesn't matter what you believe in. As long as you're thinking positively and you're meditating because you're being calm and all of that and you're thinking positive, all of that helps you. And there may be some truth in that. But in the end, what we should recognize as Christians is that, yeah, it's not just general prayer. It is prayer to the God of the Bible and our belief and hope in Him, even when He doesn't heal. Heal. We have our trust and our hope and our praise in Him. Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 16, "...for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible." whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And then you get to the book of Revelation in chapter four, it begins, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created by that fact alone that God has created all things means he is already deserving of all glory honor and power remember that we do not just worship God and give him the reverence he deserves because he has saved us that is true he has done that but he's already deserving of reverence and praise because he is the source of all things and the source of all life we are just then accepting the truth of what the Word of God says about how the fact that we are separated from Him and that we have been reconciled to Him because of what Christ has done. And so we're just acknowledging what has always been true. It didn't just become true because He saved us. That's why then the non believer will be judged for that because the non believer is beholding to God, they are obligated to worship God. They are not worshiping God. That's why we say that the non-believer, as they live their life, are in sin 24 hours a day. Every breath they take is a breath of rebellion, of unbelief towards God. They may not feel hatred in their hearts, but that part doesn't matter. They're refusing to acknowledge the truth. And remember, the one that they are disrespecting is not, you know, the police officer down the street. The one that they are rejecting, the one they are disrespecting, is the one who is the source of their very life. The one who is the source of their very next breath. And so therefore they are guilty before God. Remember that the non-believer is not judged because he's not received Christ. He is judged for all of his sin, which includes that. And so therefore they are beholding to him. You see, here's the problem for evolution. If evolution is true... If the universe produces everything, the assertion then is that all things that exist are the result of a physical only process. Now I emphasize that because remember the Bible says God is what? God is spirit. God does physical things, but God is spirit. Here what evolution is saying is that everything that exists, it's a materialistic viewpoint, everything that exists exists only because of a physical only process of matter and motion. So then we go back to the question we asked last week. How do you justify logic? Because logic is non-physical. You you can't go to Kroger and get it. You know, it's not on the shelf. You can't rent it. It's not something you can put in your pocket. It's not something that you can hold and see. But we all know that it's real, it's true, and we use it every day. So again, logic is not a physical thing. If everything that includes logic, math, and morality came about by a physical-only process, how do you account for the presence of non-physical realities? If the agnostic, if the evolutionist is correct and there is nothing beyond the material realm, then his theory is the byproduct of a physical-only process and therefore cannot be trusted. Remember, he cannot even account for his use of reason. So then to employ reason to propagate the theory of evolution is self-refuting. Now that'll make more and more sense as we go along. But think about it a little more. What is the scientific grounds for bacterium, for bacteria, to evolve to a higher form? The evolution, survive with the fittest, you want to evolve to a higher form, uh, different kinds of reasons for that. So why would bacteria want to do that? If you think about it, bacteria is the fittest creature on the planet, rivaled only by cockroaches. These two types of organisms do not need to evolve because they survive quite nicely, Nothing is more tenacious, more resilient, more stout, and produces more functioning, self-acquiring offspring than bacteria, as well as cockroaches. In fact, most of us are convinced that even if there was a nuclear explosion, cockroaches would survive. So why would the cockroach or why would bacteria need to evolve? What's the need for that? They can survive, as I've already mentioned, a nuclear bomb. The organisms that evolutionists claim as the higher creatures die off easier and quicker, and produce far less offspring. The higher up the ladder you go, the more likely the organism is extinct or is put on the endangered species list. Look at how fragile the whales are and the great apes are as a species. Large mass creatures or large body mass creatures are much less fit than the tenacious organisms like bacteria or cockroaches. We must have God as the pre-essential of creation, or nothing in the cosmos can even make sense. Again, in verse 19, it's written, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. But it doesn't always feel like that's happening. It seems that the agnostic and the evolutionists are winning the day. And For them, the message of the cross, again, is foolishness. But it's foolishness because they are perishing. To To those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It feels like we are clutching Like we are clinging to the foolish message, hoping against hope that it is really true because we see nowhere else to turn. Let me read to you from Psalm 10, beginning in verse 7. His mouth, is about the non-believer, his mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages from ambush. He murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and he never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he will not call me into account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it, and you take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from this land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. This part of the psalm is a very forceful description of the wicked's vicious power. And as David here writes, he turns his complaint to the Lord, who seemed to be uninterested in the plight of the oppressed. In fact, the wicked may triumph, caused David to ask the Lord, why was God hiding himself from the trouble? So David describes the wicked as lurking in secret places like a lion to attack his helpless victims, to drag them off as a fisherman does with his net. And so David then makes a very earnest cry for vengeance, calling on God to arise and help the helpless. It is not right that the wicked should be allowed to despise God and to think he can get away with his action. The Lord should be motivated to respond because the afflicted trust God and sees trouble and grief and is their helper. David's specific requests were that God would punish the wicked. The imagery is graphic. To break one's arm means to destroy his power. If God so judges the wicked by such a destruction, then, then they would be called to account for their deeds. And David would then no longer be able to say that God does not see his deeds or care for the afflicted. So David then closes with an expression of confidence that the writer's prayer has been heard, he declares that the Lord is sovereign, and that those in the nations who oppose him will perish. David was sure that the Lord hears the cry of the afflicted, and he does defend their cause, so that the wicked, who are mere mortals, will not terrify them no more. Faith that God defends the afflicted and the needy against the tyranny of the wicked was a comfort to David and the basis for his prayer. What I want you to know that in the day and age which we live in, there is a great deal of affliction going on. Yes, there are those believers who are being afflicted physically because they are simply Christians. But it's still a battle of ideologies. It is men who are suppressing the knowledge of God because they hate God. And they hate what is to them the foolish message of the cross. And they want to destroy it. Where we live in our day and time, it is the assault from those who are in media, those who are the supposed celebrities, those who are trying to find ways to become famous, no matter what field that they are in, trying to use social media to afflict Christianity, to come against us and, and, and imply that we are dumb, that we are not, that we're not smart, that we are bigoted, that we are this, that we are that. And so we pray to God, but God is going to answer our call. God is going to judge those who are godless. Those who mock and those who persecute will be judged one day. But until that day comes, God calls on us to give an answer, to give a reason for our belief in Christ. And God has already given us everything we need in his word. And he's already told us that he has already destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And so we need to make sure that we look, and under- look at that and understand that so we can stand on solid ground. So when the assaults come whether the assaults come through social media, whether the assaults come through from pressure from society, whether the assaults come through political pressure, or even if the assaults come in physical persecution, we will be able to stand strong because we will know for a fact that we are standing on solid ground, not make-believe, not our grandparents believe, not on some superstition, but because what we know, we know is true in every way. For not only has God declared it, God has shown it to us and he's even shown it to them. And they have just suppressed the truth. So I want to encourage you this morning to continue to re your faith and, and see where you are as a believer. Ask yourself, are you able to withstand the assault of the world or are you sometimes kind of whimpering when they come our way? I want you to be assured that you need to continue to read your Bible every day and arm yourself with the truth of the word of God. Because it's not just only the information that is in the Word of God. It is actually the way the Word of God is presented that will strengthen your mind. Strengthen your faith. And maybe some of you have already succumbed. Maybe you realize that you really don't know Christ. Remember that the message of the cross, though it's viewed as foolishness by the world, is the power of God to salvation. That simple message is profound in so many ways. When we make the statement that Jesus has come to die for sin... It's, it's more than just this little tiny event that took place in Jerusalem thousands of years ago. It is the God-man who came to redeem mankind from his own foolishness and darkness. And the only way that that could be done is for man's real sin to be dealt with. And that was dealt with by Christ, the only one who lived a perfect life. And God then punished him as if he was guilty of all the sins that we would commit as believers. And that sin was dealt with. And for those who believe in Christ, the gift of salvation is yours. And we pray that you would consider Christ. And if you have any questions about that, the goal here is always the same. We want people to believe in Christ with their eyes wide open. It's not blind faith. There's reasons for what we believe in. The evidence is overwhelming. The presuppositions are profound and solid. And what we believe is the truth. And we know that it is true. And we invite all to examine its claims and to see really the glory of God in each one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and again for the marvelous word that you've preserved for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts and strengthen our minds in the truth of your word, that you would help us to see truly the foolishness of the world. Help us, Father, to to boldly declare, to boldly believe that this alternative philosophy of life called evolution really is vain and empty in every way and that we are not overstating the case. It is foolishness in every way. We pray, Lord, that we would not just be words that come out of our mouth, but, Father, we would understand it to be the case because of our solid stand on the gospel and the absolute truth of the word of God. So I pray, Lord, that we would all be strengthened here this morning. We'll be strengthened to pray more often, strengthened to share the gospel more readily. And Father, you'll be glorified and our joy in Christ may be complete. Again, Father, we, as always, we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.